Pound the Rock is brought to you by the Score Bet. Take advantage of lightning fast score updates and live odds to ensure you never miss a beat when you've got skin in the game. Download now on iOS and Android. Available in Colorado, Indiana, Iowa, and New Jersey. Must be 21 plus. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, contact 1-800-522-4700 in Colorado, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, or 1-800-GAMBLER in New Jersey. Visit thescore.bet for more details. Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Score's NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I am joined, as always, remotely by a seething, nauseated... Come on, come on. Joe Wolfon, in the wake (laughs) of what he, in a text to me last night, said was the biggest disgrace in pro sports history. Mm. He did not really say that, but he might as well have. That was Andrew Wiggins being selected to start the 2022 all-star game joe have you recovered are you all right honestly man i maybe this is going to disappoint some people who came here to listen to like a cash style rant about this misguided selection and i will say some people have come here for that just you know there are a few people that reached out on uh on twitter Mm -hmm. last night to say they specifically wanted to hear our thoughts on this most likely (laughs) yours because of your previous mentions of your feelings i i I do want to quickly say some of those people I ended up interacting with in DMs and stuff, they will end up with shout outs on future episodes. But <laughs> since you mentioned that there's probably people that came for this, I will tell you that there are, for a fact, people that came just for this. So well, don't disappoint them, Wolfon. No, I mean, I'm sorry to disappoint, but I'm just not. Here's the thing. I don't think that Andrew Wiggins deserves to be an all-star, let alone an all-star starter. Like, that's. I'm struggling to think of a worse all-star starter in the past, I don't know. I mean, I feel like there were times when like late career Allen Iverson would get voted in as a starter just because of his immense popularity. And that was back when they were doing like a hundred percent of it as the fan vote for the starters. Um, and then, you know, they, they kind of split it. So it's 50% fan vote to try and weed right. that stuff out and get the most deserving players in there. And still, uh, because I think he wound up like fifth in the media vote and sixth in the player vote. That was enough to carry him through. It was actually opposite. So it was the media had him sixth. Yeah. Which I thought made sense because if you remember our debate last week, even when I had him in as an all-star, I had him as the sixth front court player, basically the last front court player in. Um, And I had said at the time, I think I was a little bit by default. I thought it was, you know, because of some injuries and stuff, it was like the weakest West front court mix in a long time. I think if you're going to have him in, that's where he should have been. He should have been the last front court reserve in. The fact that he got, you know, a starting spot, I don't even agree with that. But I did think it was interesting that the players had him fifth. The player vote went like this for the West front court: LeBron, Jokic, Draymond, Gobert. Which again, that makes sense. Even we said Dr- Draymond Gobert for us was a toss up for that third spot. We went with Gobert, but the top four for the players, I think, spot on. Five and six. Wiggins and Aiton, they had Towns seventh. Yeah, I kind of feel like Towns seems to me like the kind of player who just doesn't engender a ton of respect among his peers. Yep. Like, I, and I don't know anything about him as a person or what his relationships are like around the league. I'm just strictly talking about him as a player. I feel like despite how skilled he is, 
I, I feel like there's this notion that, I, I mean, it's backed up, I guess, by, by that player vote that uh, whether they think that he's just kind of soft or I don't know. I mean, you have it right there. Like they, <laughs> they gave more votes to Andrew Wiggins than they did to Carl Anthony Towns, which um, if you, uh, if you think about like their, their history on the Timberwolves and uh, what those teams looked like and, and which one of those players was being built around, uh, it's kind of interesting to, to think that Wiggins is now starting in large part because he got more player votes than Carl Towns did. But w- what I want to say, I guess, is it sucks because I feel like there are more deserving players and one of those more deserving players in my mind is now going to get left out. Yep. Like it seems very unlikely to me now that Brandon Ingram will get selected to the all-star game, for instance. Uh, although, I mean, Draymond's probably not going to play, right? So there'll be an injury yeah. replacement and that yeah. will help. But there, there are... I mentioned this when we talked about it. Like there are a lot of guys that I would have had ahead of him, even uh, aside from Ingram, who I wound up picking for that last front court spot. Like honestly, I would have had JV ahead of him. Like I, I probably would have put Aiton ahead of him. I probably would have put Porzingis ahead of him, who I think has sneakily had like a really solid two way season for Dallas. Porzingis uh, should Jaren- get some defensive player of the year votes. If we're being honest, Porzingis? not, not number one, not number one, like first play, but he'll, he should. And I think will get some, like down ballot, he'll finish like maybe like fourth, fifth. You think so, eh? I think so. Yeah, I think if if Dallas continues to defend like this, his rim protection remains like this. I know his rim protection isn't the the be all end all for that defense, but I do mm-hmm. think um, between the rim protection and Dallas's stunning defense, I think it'll end up with him getting the bulk of like the media credit and ending up somewhere on that defensive player of the year ballot. Yeah. Um, well, I I mean Jaron Jackson Jr. That's another guy who I think, and, and I would definitely put him ahead of Porzingis if we're talking about sort of down ballot defensive yep. player of the year I agree candidates. With I agree with that. Uh, he, he would have been ahead of Wiggins for me. Like the, Anyway, look, point being, I didn't think he was deserving, but I'm honestly not too pressed about this because as heated as it got between you and me, I, my reaction was more about like, like I'll get fired up to have that sort of disagreement with you and I get fired up because I, I enjoy the intellectual exercise of picking the all-stars and that exercise is basically us deciding who we think have been the best players in the league this season. Like that, that is important to me because I enjoy having those conversations and like, you know, our disagreements about like what should and shouldn't factor into uh, those player rankings essentially. And if we're just talking about like the all-star game itself, you know, I don't actually care. Like I really don't care about the all-star game. And I've always said, you know, if if you're talking about how to judge what happened in a given season, if you're judging players' legacies, it's always going to be about All-NBA more so than it's going to be about All-Star. Yeah. And so, look, I'm not going to watch the game anyway. The fans voted Andrew Wiggins in. Apparently, like, there was a big push from some yeah. K-pop band. Like, yeah. that, that was what helped push him through. But, like, I just don't really care. Like, if that's what the fans wanted to see, like, then that's fine. I'm not... I'm not going to really throw a tantrum about it, especially because look, Andrew Wiggins has had a good season and, you know, in spite of my not thinking that it's been all-star caliber, it's undeniably been a good season. He's given the Warriors pretty much exactly what they've needed from him. And I think it's kind of rough because I'm, you know, I was obviously on Twitter uh, when that got announced and it's just tweet after tweet, absolutely dragging Andrew Wiggins. And it's like, I don't know if he's going to see that or not. Like, uh, you know, 
every player's social media behavior is different. Yeah. And he some does kinda, seem like the type that really doesn't care what people think. Like That's plausible. Like, yeah. yeah, some check that stuff obsessively and some really don't. But what I will say is I think it, just seeing all that, it, it like felt kind of like a downer to me to think here's this guy who has really made some important strides in his career. Like as a basketball player, he has improved so much in the last couple of years. He is undeniably playing the best basketball of his career this year, this season. And this is like him achieving, you, you know, the, the, the crowning feat of his career to date. Did you see what Steve Kerr said about it? Yeah. You said, said it, was, it was like one of the happiest moments of, of his life. He said it was the proudest moment of his coaching career to have Andrew Wiggins. And look, yeah. Is that a bit of, um, bluster maybe for a guy that's won multiple NBA championships as a coach. Okay. Maybe probably, but I, it also speaks volumes, um, of, of what a, that locker room thinks of Wiggins, but also like when you have a guy like Steve Kerr, who's been around the league, who has seen some things in this league as a player and a coach. And, and for him to say that, like, you know, that the, the development, you know what I mean? Like actually the development of this guy in particular and what they've seen from him in terms of development really means something to him and like speaks to him for him to even make that statement. Yeah. But okay. I mean, I don't know where Steve Kerr is coming from, but is it not possible that his pride is also sort of born of the fact that this guy came to him as like a, a little bit of a mess as a player. Yeah, and now sure within like a, a couple of years of Wiggins being in the Warriors system, he's an all-star starter. I mean, mate, like, there's ego wonder, with it. Maybe There's that's factoring ego. into to, to Steve Kerr's pride here, like right. thinking, well, I, you know, I fixed him. Yeah, that probably, for sure. But anyway. Talking like, about the I, guy who, who got into a fist fight with Michael Jordan, I think there's some ego there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. The, the, every single figure who works in or around the NBA has ego. Like that's, this is how it goes. But point being, I'm fine to just be like happy for Andrew Wiggins for this this crowning achievement whether I think it was earned or not, like it, it clearly means a whole lot to him. It means a lot to the, to the Warriors organization. And like, I just don't see the point of like dragging him down when, okay. I mean, I've made my, my feelings on the subject clear. Uh, I, I'm fine with it. Like he, he deserves praise. I don't think he deserves this particular accolade, but I also don't think he deserves to just like have his name dragged through the mud because uh, people think he got this undeserving spot. Like, it's fine. Good for Andrew Wiggins. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm happy for him being happy, and uh, I, I don't care about the All Star game anyway. So, I'm I'm fine to just let it lie. Jo- join Steve Nash and Jabal McGlure as the only Canadians to be NBA All Stars. I'm sure more are coming in the future. But the the one thing I'll say is that. Obviously, again, I when we did the exercise last week, I had him as the last all-star in in the West. Kind of like hesitant about it, but I did have him in there. So I'm not going to now pretend I'm like outraged by this. But if you look at undeserving starters, if we want to call them that, in, in all-star history, the guys that usually come to mind are guys that like didn't play a lot that season, still got fan vote, right? Like whether you go back to Vince Carter back in the day, barely playing and getting the fan vote, Yao Ming not playing and getting the fan vote. In terms of, like, when I try to think of guys who were available, like, play, like were completely available to play and got voted in in terms of merit, I don't know if I can remember a time 
where a guy was less deserving of a starting spot. Again, I'm not trying to tear him down because I, I think he probably would have made it anyway. But in terms of like, in my memory, undeserving starters, but guys that actually played, like they they had a body of work of game action that season that I just didn't think was anywhere near st- all-star starter level right. and still got in. I can't remember uh, an example like this. Well, and it's also just because he was in direct competition with Draymond for that spot. And it's like, if you're looking at who is more valuable to that team, like who is yeah. a better player, you know, who has been more integral to the Warriors' success this season, like, you know, to me, it's a pretty easy call. So the fact yeah. that he specifically got that spot over Draymond when they're on the same team and it should be abundantly clear to anyone who's like paid even token attention to the Warriors this season yeah. uh, who the more deserving player there is, then that's that makes it a little bit more egregious. But uh, again, I, and I think so maybe this is like a, a little bit of a pivot point for us and we don't have to spend too much time talking about this, but I actually didn't mention in that list of, of front court players that I would have had ahead of Wiggins. I didn't mention Anthony Davis because when we did like the, the all-star exercise, I didn't know when he was coming back. I didn't know like, would we even see him again before the all-star game? He'd missed, you know, close to 20 games and hadn't really been the Anthony Davis that, that we've come to know over the last few years when he had been healthy this season. But he's back now, and we've still got a bit of a runway before the All-Star game. And he looked pretty damn good last night after what I thought was a, a somewhat worrying debut, uh, or not debut, but return game, I guess, against the Nets, where he looked quite sluggish. He looked an awful lot like Anthony Davis last night. So th- I think there's a pretty good chance that he's ultimately going to factor into this mix when it comes time for the coaches to make their decision uh, about the reserves. What do you? What do you think of how he looked last night in that game against Philly? I, th- I think he looked great in that game against Philly after a weird start um, and hurting himself again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. On the all-star front, I don't think he'll factor in. You got to remember, like the coaches' picks, I think, are due any day now, right? Because the reserves are announced next week. I still think he has missed way too much time for the coaches to now put him in as a res- like. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. But in terms of the way he looked, yes, he did look fine. He looked good. That should be encouraging for the Lakers, but they still lost in a game where Russell Westbrook managed the very hard-to-accomplish feat of scoring inefficiently while shooting 60% from the field. He shot 9 of 15, but he also turned the ball over six times and never got to the free throw line, so he ended up scoring 20 points on 21 individual possessions. Ah, Russ, hate to see it. AD looking as good as he did should give Lakers fans like some semblance of hope that okay maybe it's possible when LeBron and AD are on the court together they can still capture something but to me I've just seen too much this season even when both guys were in the lineup and okay AD wasn't really looking 100% when they were both in the lineup earlier but still I've seen too much from this team to think that like there is some saving grace here they this team stinks I believe look you remember when we did our uh, preseason predictions and I said I, I was barely clinging to them as my NBA Finals um, representative out of the West. But what I said at the time was that I was like so not sure about it that this was not going to be the thing of like a couple years ago when I really believed in that Heat team and, and you know, nothing could derail me. And then they went to the finals like this was very much like there are some things I, I kind of expect to see from this team on the wrong side of things. And once I see them, I'll be like, I'm out on this team. I'm out on this team. Like they stink. And I don't even think AD looking as good as he did yesterday, partnered with LeBron as well as he's playing this year, is going to make the difference necessary to beat a team like Phoenix or even Golden State in the playoffs. So 
yes, AD looked good. That is a big development for them, obviously. You know, maybe that is, like, for real, that is the difference probably between them being a playing team or snatching that sixth seed, and that does matter. But if we're talking, like, you know, if, if it's getting them back to, like, championship ceiling or even, like, final ceiling, I don't see it. Like, I'll say it again. This team stinks. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would... I'm curious to see. Le- Le- LeBron didn't play last night. Uh, I'm curious to see what it looks like when they're all in the lineup together. And I think they've got a pretty tough... I mean, they're in the midst of this really tough stretch of games right now. So I feel like we will learn a lot about them in the coming weeks. Definitely the the LeBron at center stuff has goosed their offense, which was much needed. Can they sort of fold AD into that where like the LeBron at center lineups are turning into Anthony Davis at center lineups? And I did think it was interesting. Like, obviously it was different in the game against Philly, A, because LeBron wasn't there and B, because you're going up against Joel Embiid. So like Dwight Howard did get a, a decent amount of run in that game. But in the game against the Nets, they still didn't play their centers. Like the the transitional lineups were still LeBron at five lineups uh, and AD started at center. So I'm curious to see kind of like how their lineup construction looks. But more than that, I'm curious like, okay, can Anthony Davis's jump shot rebound to the point that they're still getting the sort of benefit of the offensive spacing? while actually being able to play defense in uh, those lineup configurations because they haven't been able to do that with LeBron at the five. And if AD can come back and, and shore that up, you know, despite the fact that like people really dragged his defense before he got hurt and maybe it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't at the level that we, we've grown accustomed to from Anthony Davis in the past, but I still think he was like pretty clearly the best defensive player on the team even before he went down. So if he can come back and shore that up, and, uh, you know, he knocked down, I don't know if he hit any threes, actually, but he was knocking down mid-range jumpers against Philly, which is really encouraging to see. Uh, they need that from him. So if they can, yeah, they can get the benefit of, of like actual spacing on offense and Anthony Davis anchoring the back line on defense, then I will maybe start to take them more seriously as like a, a team that can go on a late season run here. It'll definitely be something to watch for sure, which the Lakers didn't seem like even a week or two ago. All right, let's take an early break, come back, and talk about two teams going in very opposite directions. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out The Score's YouTube page for an informative yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, we got two teams we're going to talk about today. The first team is the first team. They are the number one team in the NBA. No all-star, well, no all-star starters. I think they'll have two by the time the reserves are announced. But the Phoenix Suns, a franchise best 38-9. and They're on pace for 66 wins. They are three games clear of any other team in the standings, uh, though the second-place Warriors do still have the best point differential in the league. The Suns are the only team uh, in the top five on both ends of the court. They have the number five offense and the number two defense. They have a great starting unit. They have the number two ranked bench in terms of point differential when uh, at least, uh, I don't know if it's at least two or at least three reserves are on the court, but they've got you know a top two bench and, and a great starting unit. Everything about them is 
pretty awesome. They've obviously got two stars at the top of the roster who can just absolutely kill you in isolation and late game situations, which is why they are so dominant in crunch time. They also take care of the ball because of those two guys and they can kill you in isolation like that. And those guys can kind of beat you in an old school way, but yet they're also a team that really moves the ball well and runs some beautiful offense. They are a selective but good three-point shooting team. Defensively, they take away the rim and I think kind of help protect DeAndre Ayton, but Ayton himself has obviously become a very good defensive big. They don't let teams really get free from three. They force a lot of mid-range stuff. Between Mikel Bridges and Jay Crowder, they can shut your best player down or at least have two guys as capable of doing that on the wing as any team in the league. Even a guy like Alfred Payton, who I know isn't like a, a big time rotation force for them, still a great defensive option off of the bench. JaVale McGee has been solid for them as a, as a, a big. And, you know, even Frank Kaminsky, who got hurt at the start of the year, was playing pretty well from that for them. You, I know you wrote, um, I don't remember how long ago it was now, about this kind of like ragtag bunch of centers that the Suns were uh, filtering through and every one of them just happened to step up for them. Like everything seems to be going right. They're just that good of a team. There's really nothing more I can say about this team. What do you have to add? What do you see from this team? Other than the record, mm. are they very clearly the best team in the league to you if you're talking postseason ceilings? Um, okay, so postseason ceilings, maybe it gets a little bit more complicated. I think without a doubt, I mean, obviously the record speaks for itself, but like they're very clearly the best regular season team in the league right now. And I probably would have said Utah coming into this season, but um, I think like just the night to night consistency from the Suns and how confidently they execute their stuff at both ends of the floor. Like there's just a level of, of focus and just being dialed in that I don't think any other team can really match. Like they don't screw up and offensively it's like when when defenses are kind of able to like snuff out their primary and secondary and tertiary options it's like they're able to create something out of nothing in a way that few other teams in the league really are and they sort of just like they keep playing right and even if it bogs down into like a Devin Booker isolation you still tend to feel pretty good about their ability to conjure a bucket out of thin air in those situations and I'll just go back to the thing that you mentioned about the revolving door of centers. Uh, and I did write a piece about it a couple weeks back. So obviously Dario Saric, uh, you know, tore his ACL in the playoffs last year. It was actually like a pretty big blow for them. And in the finals, they had a pretty, like a solidly positive scoring margin with Aiton on the floor. And that changed as the series went on. Like he kind of ran out of gas which is understandable because he was playing like over 40 minutes a game by the end of that series because they had nobody to back him up. But they lost that series in the minutes that he was on the bench. Like they got crushed when he wasn't on the floor. And so they sort of took steps to address that in the offseason. They signed JaVale McGee, which has proven to be a wonderful signing for them at, uh, I think, the, the taxpayer mid-level. They brought back Frank Kaminsky, who you mentioned had been really good before he got injured. Like He, he has a stress reaction in his knee. I don't know when he's coming back, but he was yeah. unbelievable when he was healthy. Hasn't played since November, I think. And everybody else has just been in and out of the lineup. So like right now... Uh, I mean, Aiton has dealt with injuries and he's also been in health and safety protocols. He's got an ankle injury right now. Uh, McGee has been in health and safety protocols. He's got a knee injury right now. And Bismack Biombo, who the Suns plucked off the scrap heap, has 
just slid right into that role and they haven't missed a beat. They are 10 and 0 when Biombo plays. Just on the whole, like any center basically that they have plugged in has done a wonderful job, like including Jalen Smith, who had his third year option declined less than a year after the Suns picked him 10th overall. And still, when he was pressed into duty, managed to make a pretty positive impact. And I think it's like... I will note about Biombo. I think had he played maybe another week or two, he probably would have finished ahead of Carl Anthony Towns in the playoff. <laughs> I mean, yeah, like he's full credit to him because he obviously was like staying mentally and physically prepared, right? He went from being out of the league to like starting and closing games for the best team in the NBA. Uh, and he was playing, you know, essentially some of the best basketball of his career. And I know a lot of people have justifiably given credit to like Chris Paul and the Sun system in general. And I can talk about, you know, some of the ways that they put their centers in position to succeed. But I think Biombo himself does deserve a lot of credit because, you know, first of all, he's always been a high level defender. He moves his feet really well. He can switch. He can protect the rim. His activity level is off the charts. But then offensively, which is where he's always struggled, I mean, he's catching passes in a way that I haven't really seen him do in the past. Like his hands just look improved to me. Um, He's actually making like some short roll plays. And the thing that's stood out to me maybe more than anything is like, watch him seal his guy. Like if, whether it's on a switch or just on a duck in, like if he has a smaller guy on him, like whether it's offensive rebounding or just clearing a guy out. So the Suns player has like a clear drive to the rim. He is sealing guys with so much vigor right now. Um, it's honestly impressive. So even though they're within like the range of three feet of the rim, I kid you not, I feel like I have seen him make more of those shots without needing the glass or to dunk it than in like the rest of his career combined. Yeah, he's he's making some some baby hooks that, yeah. uh, and and some of them are like somehow just bouncing three or four times on the rim and dropping in. Like uh, there was one that I cited in that piece that I wrote where. Uh, his former teammate Jonas Valanciunas was guarding him and he was on the baseline and he threw up this hook shot. It like barely missed the side of the backboard and it hit like the fat part of the rim, you know, like back rim basically. And then bounced like three more times on the rim and went in and you could hear on the broadcast Valanciunas just yelling, Oh my God. Uh, And that's what it's been like for the sun centers this year, man. It's like they're kissed by the basketball gods. It's incredible. Like there was, there was another play like sometime before that when uh, Jalen Smith, Uh, had been plugged in as the starting center he's like running pick and roll with chris paul paul hits him with the pocket pass jalen smith completely fumbles the pocket pass it flies like 15 feet in the air and then he just runs and like catches up with it right underneath the basket and dunks it in like that it's just it's been going like that for the sun centers and again i give credit to all of them like mcgee has been honestly one of the best rim protectors in the nba and it's not just this season right like early in his career he used to block chase Right. And so he would like rack up a lot of block numbers, but he wasn't actually a particularly effective rim protector because he wasn't judicious at all about how he went about it. And that's not really the case anymore at all. Like he's he's actually like just very positionally sound, very smart um, about uh, the shots that he contests. And so we're now looking at this is the fourth year in a row where he's had sub 52 percent defensive field goal percentage at the rim under 50 percent this season, which. I think only Gobert and Giannis have been better. And obviously he's an incredible pick and roll finisher who can get up above the rim and like 
just like any of these other centers, like you plug him into the Suns pick and roll attack. And they obviously have Paul, who is a wonderful, I mean, maybe the best pocket passer in the NBA, right? And also quite a good lob passer. But then they also just have pristine spacing, which is a, a result of the great shooting that they have on the wing, but also the activity that they introduce on the weak side when they're running pick and roll, right? They're running weak side cuts, pin downs, flare screens, essentially that wipe out defenders who try to like pinch in and then recover. And in general, I I think they do a better job than any team probably of like clearing out space in the middle of the floor, which is partly how like Chris Paul is able to get free for all his elbow jumpers. And it's partly how their bigs are just constantly able to find space to roll and to finish. It'll be interesting to see like, how many of these guys, if any of them, really factor in come playoff time? Like when Aiton's on the bench, McGee, Biombo, Kaminsky, if he's back healthy, I mean, Jalen Smith, maybe. Like do any of these guys, is there a trust level there? Are they going to be able to actually like play minutes in the playoffs that matter so that what happened to them in the finals last year doesn't happen again? Like can they survive the Aiton on the bench minutes um, with any of these guys? That's sort of what I'm interested to see. But I'll just throw this stat out there before I kick it back to you. Here are the Suns' net rating with each of their centers that they've played this season on the floor. Aiton, a plus 4.9. Pretty solid. JaVale McGee, plus 9.2. Frank Kaminsky, plus 9.6. Jalen Smith, plus 13.4. And Bismack Biombo 17.9. <laughs> so... But- that's uh, that's pretty incredible stuff. What I was going to say when you asked the question about whether the same thing will happen that happened in the finals where they just can't handle the eight and list minutes and, and whether these guys can kind of carry this over to the postseason. I would say the, the only reason, the only way to me that they wouldn't be able to carry it over is if like everything we've seen from Biombo, and I realize this is possible, but everything we've seen from Biombo the last couple of weeks is completely smoke and mirrors. Like I realize, okay, he might be playing a little over his head right now, but some of the stuff he does legitimately look like an improved or at least a more, a slightly more polished player who is playing in a very good system, as you mentioned, with the point guard, you know, to kind of help him and guide him offensively in a system that I do think helps him defensively. Like it does, as you mentioned, all their centers. To me, there is no reason, there is no uh, basketball reason, there is no real tangible reason that I would be able to point to that would indicate like, okay, here is why this guy is going to fall off when the games count or, you know, when they, when it's like high leverage moments or the playoffs. No, like I, I think what he's doing is actually very sustainable. You know, maybe, okay, maybe a few of these shots don't fall for him. You mentioned like the triple bet, like, sure, the percentages might come down slightly, but I think for the most part, what he's doing and the way he's doing it in the system, he's doing it is actually very sustainable. So I can't imagine that it's going to fall off to the point where like, damn, the Suns just can't survive these eight endless minutes again. That's going to tank them in this, in, in the playoffs. You know, they might not end up winning the championship, but I don't believe it would be because like a guy like Biombo's game reverts to what it was six years ago or something. Like I, I think they are pretty insulated and protected against that. Yeah, and the other thing is like, okay, so if they were to if they were to meet the Bucks in the finals again, or yeah. if they were to meet like the Sixers in the finals again, then they're not like when Aiden hits the bench, they are going to need one of their other centers probably to be on the floor. Like in last year's finals, they basically reverted to going centerless. 
Uh, that was like the only option they had other than playing Kaminsky, who, unlike this season, wasn't particularly effective in the finals when he played. And we've seen them bust out that the kind of small ball look uh, with like Crowder or even Cam Johnson at the five. They did that when they played against the Warriors, which is like a pretty good opponent to do that against. You want to be able to switch against the Warriors because of all their off-ball screening action. The ability to keep yourself out of rotation and like they have a lot of like-sized guys in those lineups. And like, I mean, Chris Paul, right? Like he can handle himself on the back end of switches against bigger players. So that can definitely work um, in certain matchups. So they, they have that as like a, a kind of ace up their sleeve if they need to go to that, uh, as long as it's not in a matchup against a team like Milwaukee or Philly, who either has like a dominant big or just a, a player who puts a ton of pressure on the rim. Um, so it's just like a, a number of options that they have uh, and more options than they had last year. They look even better to me, right? Like they're just, yep. they've been together for Dude, they're on longer pace for now. 66 like, wins. Yeah, it's they're they're like that much more comfortable and familiar with each other and with the stuff that they're running. Uh, there's just like no miscommunication on either side of the ball, and uh, very few, if any, weak spots in their rotation that you can really prod at. It's hard to argue, right, that they should be the favorite right now, given mm-hmm. given the way that they've played, and also like, man, th- this Draymond Green injury is like sounding pretty worrisome, right? And I think obviously, like the Warriors who I don't know if the season series is it's not done yet, but I think so far it's like two, one warriors. That's going to be their biggest rival. I think in the West, right? Like the biggest roadblock to them winning the Western conference. And I think it's pretty impossible to know right now who's going to come out of the East. Like it's such a free for all there. But um, if we're just looking at the West, like the team that, that looks to me like the one that's most capable of stopping them is dealing with a, hugely significant injury right now what did they say it's like a hamstring hamstring tightness or soreness that is related to a calf 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 soreness that's related related to to like a a disc in his back concerning (laughs) yeah he's like joined the tnt crew now as like a an active player analyst which i don't know i mean maybe that maybe that shouldn't be cause for alarm but like (laughs) <laughs> does that make you feel any any more confident about his ability to like imminently get back on the floor? I mean, it definitely does sound concerning. Anytime you start talking about like the back and leg connection, I start thinking like people with like sciatica problems. Like, I don't know. It's just, it's concerning for a guy who is as valuable and as absolutely necessary to the Warriors championship hopes as Draymond Green is, but definitely clears the path a little bit for the Suns. Last Suns thing I want to touch on before we move on. Monty Williams has to get coach of the year this year. He finished runner-up to Tom Thibodeau last year. Look, there are some guys who definitely deserve to be in the conversation in terms of the the standard like coaches with an overachieving young team. Taylor Jenkins and J.B. Bickerstaff deserve a ton of praise. Eric Spolstra having the heat in first place despite all their injuries. Spo always should be there. Billy Donovan, I think, is like the down ball guy. He's like the fifth place guy. But still, you look at the, the season the Bulls have had, definitely you know deserves some coach of the year love kind of thing on the ballot but for my money monty williams who again (laughs) finished runner-up to tom thibodeau last year he needs to win it this year like this guy this this guy has this team running like a finely tuned well-oiled machine like i don't know maybe it doesn't matter to a lot of people but I, i i'm a big believer in awards going to the right players coaches whatever because whether you want to talk legacies or whatever it's just that deserving people should win the award and Monty Williams, I think, had a, you know, had an argument to win it last year and absolutely deserves it this year. So I know we still have almost half the season left, but 
barring something going off the rails here, I'm almost ready to have his name engraved on it now. Yeah, I mean, I got to say, so typically I would be very opposed to the notion of like factoring in something that happened previously into like uh, voting for an award. Like just focus on what happened this particular season. Like if there's a coach who deserves coach of the year this season, then give it to that coach. Mm -hmm. But I think like I see no reason why like Monty Williams' performance this season has been any less impressive than it was last year. And I think like there Spolstra for sure has a case. I think Kerr honestly has a case. Like both those guys have been unbelievable, but if it comes down to it and we're like splitting hairs and like, you know, you can't choose between those two guys, then yeah, give it to the guy who got absolutely robbed last year as something of a a two year achievement award, because um, what he has done with that Suns team in the still like pretty brief amount of time that he has been there is, uh, is absolutely unbelievable. So like it is still crazy to think that we're talking about the Suns here, right? As being yep. like the best team in the league and possibly the championship favorite. Like, yeah, I know these things sent like kind of normalize pretty quickly in the NBA, but like if you just think back to like a couple years ago, uh, the Suns, like the Phoenix Suns, are like the most buttoned up like professional yeah. team in the league that just goes out there and like does their thing every single night, and like you can't rattle them, and it's um, it's wild. It will be interesting to see if and when the uh, results of the investigation into Robert Sarber and the Suns organization drops. If, you know, if that at all does kind of rattle the cage a bit. And, you know, Chris Paul, obviously having the experience of being the leader of the Clippers when all the Sterling stuff went down, he's the guy you want kind of leading your team in some sort of like if some sort of internal strife like that comes up, and obviously there could be things that come up that are way bigger than basketball, so I don't want to trivialize any of that, but I think it's possible that that would, could cause some dis- major distractions in season. I think the Suns have the type of roster with Paul at the top that is well-equipped to deal with it, but that is something that could kind of throw a wrench into this thing, you know? Especially because, yes, we are talking about the Suns all of a sudden looking like the most well-run team, at least non, non-ownership level. That is something I think to watch for. All right, from the best team in the league who deserve nothing but praise to the flaming dumpster fire. Wow. That is the Washington Wizards. The Wizards, they looked all polished up early in the season. Not anymore. Since starting 10-3, and three, the Wizards are 13-22 and 22 with the 22nd ranked offense, 27th ranked defense, and a loss profile. That includes losses to the lowly Rockets, Pacers, Kings, Spurs, Dameless Blazers. And of course, most recently, they blew a 35-point home lead and an 8-point lead in the final 35 seconds to those feisty, undermanned, Kawhi-less, PG-less Clippers, which ended with Bradley Beal fouling Luke Kennard for a game-winning four-point play, though in the... uh, final two minutes report the next day the league did say that was the wrong call should have been called on the floor rather than shooting so Kennard actually should have had the chance to get two points out of that play not four but still you basically blew a 35 point lead at home you kind of deserve that they were briefly after I think 13 games I know it was early but still they were briefly the early season first place team in the eastern conference they are now clinging to 10th the final playing spot by just half a game over the Knicks. They've fallen six games back of sixth. So 
any chance you know this team had of actually contending for the final playoffs proper spot is gone. I think they're toast in general, even though they are clinging to the final playing spot right now. You've got to blow it up at the deadline. Like they are still better off as an organization than where they were where they were pre-rust trade. So credit to Tommy Shepard and the front office for that. But they're still nowhere near having a promising future in my eyes. And you know that probably hurts doubly so because again, as we've mentioned hundreds of times before, we are talking about a team and a fan base that has not seen a 50-win season or a conference finals appearance since the goddamn 1970s, but that's where they are. They're a, once again, a bad team that is going in the wrong direction that I don't think the future is anything close to set. You know, like Denny of Dia, Rui Hachimura, even Daniel Gafford, you know, we'll see what Kispert and Todd turn into. I'm not going to just completely cast those guys. I think there's some good young talent there, but there's a lot of work to be done here. And I think it begins at the deadline they've got some expiring vets you know whether it's Montrez Harrell Thomas Bryant's only 24 but I think teams will be willing to pony up something for Thomas Bryant they got Aaron Holiday I don't know maybe teams are interested in that I don't know is, is anyone interested in like Raul Neto as, as a off the bench guard I don't know but they got to do something and then obviously the big elephant in the room the cloud hanging over everything Bradley Beal could opt for free agency again this year to me, he's one of the hardest guys to read when it comes to his future because on one hand, I'm convinced he's going to want out and he's starting to say things that insinuate he might be more open to leaving than he was in the past, whether it's him talking about taking his time free agency and, and letting the process play out, whether it's him the other day randomly mentioning that, you know, if this team's a play-in team, they've taken a step back, even though they were a play-in team last year that just happened to win the play-in to get into the playoffs. Um, so we'll, we'll see what happens there, but... Yeah, lock, I also didn't mention too when I was talking about them, their future. Uh, they don't have any extra first rounders and they can't trade one of their own first rounders until 2025. So I think I've set the table here for what the Wizards are and aren't right now. Mm-hmm. Give me your thoughts, Wolfon. I mean, yeah, the Beal thing is just so interesting because I feel like as long as he doesn't signal his intent one way or another he is kind of trapping the organization in a purgatory a little bit, you know? And and like, it's, he like, he and the Wizards almost are like holding each other hostage in a way because I, I think because he has sort of showed this loyalty to the organization in the past, you know, like continually signing these extensions and not asking out when, you know, it seemed like, people expected him to and I don't think anyone would have blamed him for doing so so I don't think they're gonna like turn around and trade him without his sign off obviously and like he hasn't signed this extension that they proffered him so like there's no feeling really of security I don't think I mean internally I don't know maybe they're hearing things that let them know that he is going to be willing to re-up at season's end, but like he has a player option that he's almost certainly going to, I mean, he is certainly going to opt out of at, at the end of the season. So he can become an unrestricted free agent. And like, we're approaching the trade deadline when the team is floundering and like already it feels like when he signed that extension a couple of years ago, even then it was sort of like, okay, is this really the best thing for the organization? Because they were again, just sort of consigning themselves to this middle ground. And 
delaying what seemed like was going to, it was going to be like an inevitable rebuild anyway. Right. Because even like, you remember having this conversation last year when they were going on this late season run and Westbrook was playing really well. And it was like, yeah, this is like a fun run for the wizards, but it doesn't change their long-term outlook at all. And I kind of feel the same about the slide that they're on now. Like they're still in the same spot. It's, I think they, their outlook has actually improved because they I, I think they still came out like gangbusters out of that like Westbrook situation, right? Like, and the way that Kuzma has played since arriving there is only reinforced that. Like, they actually have a legitimate long term piece there. I think he's yeah. been great. Still, still only twenty six too, Kuzma. I think he's got a couple years left of team control. Yeah, but again, so like they they delayed the Beal trade that may or may not be coming. I guess uh, possibly because Beal just insisted that he wanted to stay. And, you know, Tommy Shepard had just taken over. I don't think he wanted his first move as like Wizards executive to be trading like the beloved franchise player. But now here they are. And like Beal's having this pretty disappointing season, which I, I obviously he's still going to have significant trade value. But thinking about like the what would his uh, his next contract be if it was a max? It would be like. Dude, it'd be like if two, it was the Wizards, it would be like five years and like two hundred and forty million yes. or something crazy like that, right? But if and if that, he was signing as a, as just like an, a, a UFA with another team, it would be like four years and I think like maybe around one sixty. I want to say between one sixty and one eighty. I'd have to go check the math on that. But right, the Wizards, the Wizards side of it, they they should not be. Th- I'm sorry, they should not be thinking about giving in that money. If they were a little further along, and you could talk yourself in like. Here's the difference to me between now and when when he signed for big money last time when people were also still debating whether he was worth that money. Last time he was up for an extension, I think he was 25, 26. And so even though we didn't believe in the Wizards, at least as an organization, they could talk themselves into, hey, this is the kind of player most teams want. This is the kind of player some teams bought him out for. We have this guy in-house. Rather than trading and, and you're starting fresh, like when the guy's still in his prime or hasn't even hit his prime yet, you keep him and you hope you can build something with him in the mix. So that made total sense. It makes a lot less sense now when by the time the summer rolls around, he's going to be 29 years old. Again, I'm not saying that he's cooked or old, like younger than us, but his best years will not be the ones ahead of him. We don't think, right? And so now it is a lot harder and almost impossible for the Wizards, given where they are in their development, to talk themselves into building a competitive team while Bradley Beal will be on that contract at the stage in his career he will be at. So for me now, even though Bradley Beal is still a really good player and an all-star caliber player, you know, at his best, I no longer think it makes sense for the Wizards to keep him because let's be real. If they offer him anything less than his the max they can, I don't think he's staying. Like, He's staying in Washington. Yes, we, we've talked about how there's a comfort and familiarity there, but for the most part, it's the money. Now, could they come a little less than the max, still more than another team and keep them? Maybe, but like even at that number, I still don't think it's worth it for them. So I think we really, really are at the point now where it makes too much sense for both sides to walk away. Yeah, but the, so we kind of get into the, the thing that we were talking about with Harden, where it's like, okay, let's say Beal gets to free agency. There are... I think three teams that project to have max cap space in the summer. And like, there are always teams that could carve that space out. Like they dump a contract, they execute a sign and trade, like they can make it work. It's not only going to be those three teams, I guess, that will be in the mix, but I think it's Detroit, San Antonio and Orlando. Yeah. So it's like, not a murder. You know, in that situation, like the organization could just sort of call his bluff and be like, 
all right, like go sign with the Pistons, Ben, if you right. really want to. Um, then again, it's like, okay, so if, if the Wizards decide they're open for business now, obviously there's going to be a ton of interest in him because of that cap environment where it's like, we're not going to be able to sign him as a free agent, but we can acquire him now and get his bird rights. But then you start to wonder, okay, so like you're going to acquire his bird rights and sign him to that massive five-year deal and give up a ton of stuff to get him. It's like the, the, the notion of like this next contract that's coming, I feel like is going to drive down his trade value because I don't yes. think there are that many teams that are going to be interested in paying that next contract, especially when it comes with, with shelling out the the type of assets that are going to be required to get that deal done. So I think, I think they're in a bit of a tough spot for that reason, but I, I definitely think that being proactive about it would be the right approach. But again, I, I feel like from their perspective, that is going to be contingent on Beal saying like, okay, it's fine. You can trade me like I'm ready. Uh, but, but if they do reach that point, I actually think they're like pretty well set up to kickstart a rebuild, right? Like with yeah, whatever yeah. they get for Beal, I think there's, I don't know if they get a first for KCP or for Harrell or, but like they could definitely like, there will be interest in KCP. There will be interest in Montrez Harrell. Like they can definitely trade those guys and get some stuff back. Uh, they have some interesting young talent on the team, you know, starting with Kuzma. Uh, I think Denny Avdia has shown, obviously you like the shooting to be a little bit better, but like, he's made tremendous strides defensively this season and he's a wing who can handle a bit and who can really pass the ball. Like I, I kind of am interested in his long-term outlook and then Gafford, I think has been great as a rim protector. Like they have sort of uh, a, a decent enough nucleus of young talent where you sort of have a fire sale at the deadline. You tank the season, get a high pick uh, like replenish that pool of young players and suddenly the future could be looking reasonably bright for this team. But for now, it's like they're just sort of trapped in this middle ground where, yeah, you called it a, a dumpster fire or whatever you called it. I think it feels that way after they blew that huge lead, but they're still a fine team. Like when we talked about them early in the season, I was kind of I was impressed with their defense and I thought elements of it were going to be sustainable. That hasn't proven to be the case, but like they're still allowing all the right kind of shots. They're just not forcing any turnovers at all. And they're also sending opponents to the line a lot. So that sort of undercut what's actually been like their uh, opponent effective field goal percentage is like eighth in the league. So um, there is some good stuff going on there, but like Dinwiddie has been a big disappointment for them. Uh, obviously Beal having the season that he's having hasn't helped. And then they've got this Bertans contract on their books, which is another thing where like, if they're open for business at the deadline, I feel like they should be doing everything they can to get off of that contract yeah. uh, at the same time that they're potentially getting off of Beal and like KCP and their other bets. Yeah, I think they're a bad team that, again, going in the wrong direction, but even though they are not set up enough for the future right now, I think they will be, if not by the end of the season, by the summer, because I do think the most likely outcome is a Beal sign and trade in the summer when... You know, a team's not trading for his bird rights with the expectation they might have to give him that big, big, big contract. They're still going to give him a big contract as part of a sign and trade in the summer, but it won't be quite the same. And so I do think that's the most likely outcome. I think I messaged you this uh, last week or we talked about it off air. My theory is that even though Beal does not deserve an Eastern Conference All-Star spot this year and he most likely will not get one, 
I could see if given the way this is going and like some of the things he's throwing out there, you know, oh, the play-in would be a step back, even though like it, it actually is not literally. The fact that he does seem to be planting the seeds more than before in terms of like, you know, here's why I might want out. I could see him when the reserves are announced next week and he does not get in because he doesn't deserve it, potentially using that or putting stuff out there about like, you know, he's not getting in because of the team not being good enough and maybe having to put himself in a better suit. Like I could see that leading down that road as well. So I I just think everything's leading towards the road where even though it's not going to happen by the deadline, this is his last season in Washington. A sign and trade will happen in the Mm -hmm. summer. He'll end up on a better team. We'll see what happens there. But the Wizards, man, how many eras can this team shuffle through without quite topping out or bottoming out? I mean, I guess they have bottomed out at different points in our lifetime, but still like in terms of recent memory, yeah, I mean, um, they drafted John Wall with the number right. one pick, right? Like, they right. were quite bad for a while. But yeah. there is definitely one team out there that would happily trade its best trade chip for Bradley Beal and would happily pay his next contract, whatever it Sixers. happens to be, right? Sixers. So that's, I mean, that should be an option to, uh, like that's available to them. I guess I just want, I mean, do, do they have higher aspirations for whatever their rebuild turns out to be than to just... I mean, I don't know, maybe, maybe they could get like Ben Simmons and stuff, you know, like Simmons mm-hmm. plus, I actually don't think that the Sixers would do like Simmons plus Maxi. Maybe they would screwed. do like Simmons plus Thibel or Simmons plus a first, like Simmons plus a couple of firsts. I don't know. Maybe they, I don't think they do that for Beal, man. I really don't. Uh, I think they will part with Simmons for him. Like I definitely think oh, Beal hundred percent. Yes. But I don't know how much they attach to Simmons to get Beal. So that's, yeah, I mean, like, are the Wizards sitting there thinking, like, no, we want something more akin to, like, the Harden package where it's it's just picks, you know? And, like, we're really just rebuilding this thing from the ground up. We don't want Simmons to be the centerpiece of the trade return because we don't want to be stuck trying to, like, build our team around Ben Simmons. Uh, I mean, I guess that could be, but but, like... I just don't know like if they have any better options than that, honestly. Like I, I don't know that these gargantuan trade offers are gonna be out there for Beal given yeah. the way he's played this season and given the money that's gonna be coming to him uh, on his next deal. Yeah. He's the even if they want more of the Harden esque picks centric package to set them up for the future, they're not getting anything close to the package of picks Houston got for James Harden because Bradley Beal is not James Harden. Yeah, but all in all, I just they're like definitely one of the most interesting teams at the deadline, right? Because they could go in any number of different ways. And if Beal is like, no, I'm staying, I'm going to re-sign in the offseason, then suddenly maybe they're a buyer and they're like trying to improve the team around him because what else is there to do at this point, yeah. you know? Yeah, um, yeah, I think they're one of the most interesting teams because again, even, even – without Beal being in the mix as a trade ship by the deadline, I do think there's some interesting vets on this team that, you know, they're not going to completely move the needle for a team, but could help some, some contending teams. Yeah. But would they, if Beal's sticking around, why are you trading those guys? Like making the team worse? I don't think Beal's sticking around. (laughs) Well, but that's the thing. That's the problem. That's why him, him just going to them and being like, it's okay. You can trade me would like really free them up. I think to make a decision that is starting to feel more and more necessary for them. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, like one word from him could just like completely change this entire trade deadline, and uh, that's an, a pretty interesting place for both him and the Wizards to be in. Yeah, he would definitely help things uh, move along if 
he gave them the word one way or the other, but that would be a very ideal situation for the Wizards. And since when does anything go in the ideal manner for this godforsaken franchise? All right, well, Fawn, we kept it under an hour. Well, let's see by the time I get done the fan shout out if we keep it to an hour. This week's fan shout out goes to Nigel Eberding in Vancouver, Canada, says he's been listening for a long time and he remembers listening to the episode when we discussed the Kawhi trade. While he was deep in the BC wilderness planting trees, loves the show and would love to hear more of my unfair encapsulations of Wolfon's takes. My favorite part of Nigel's message, though, was that he said to keep Wolfond off the Scores YouTube page because he now knows what I look like because of my work on the Scores YouTube page, but that he actually doesn't want Wolfon's face to be spoiled for him because he likes to keep face blind when it comes to audio creators and podcasts he listens to, so he can imagine them as he wishes. So, Nigel, I'm sorry that I am no longer face blind to you because of the Scores YouTube page. If Wolfon ever... Uh, wants to do some stuff on the score YouTube, I will remind him that he now can't because we can't ruin it for Nigel. But uh, in all seriousness, Nigel, uh, thank you for reaching out. Thank you for supporting the show. Thank you to all of our listeners and supporters out there. And I will remind you to hit us up, whether it's on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo or at Joey underscore double Y-O-U. Email joe.wolfon at thescore.com, joseph.cacharo at thescore.com or hit me up on Instagram, joe underscore 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 cash. Let us know where you're listening from, how long you've been a fan, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until one of those future episodes, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock. 